Welcome, listener, to a podcast series detailing the past, present, and future of a rock band that has a hilarious, strange, and inspiring tale to tell. Punchline songs endure through speakers, headphones, and car stereos, but as time marches on, it's the stories that are at risk of fading away. What you're listening to is an audio time capsule, meant to ensure that doesn't happen. This is right now. This is forever. This is a band called Punchline. It's 1997, and Punchline guitarist and vocalist Steve Sabosley remembers. I got home from a summer vacation and had a voicemail from a guy from high school that I didn't know, but he was another kind of punk kid. He was way more punk than I was, and he asked if I would, (laughs) in a voicemail on the answering machine that he left, asked if I would be in a band with him and some other guys, including Chris. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Josh Blasco, and I'm a part of this history because I made the infamous first phone call to Steve. I'm pretty sure I used the phone book to get his phone number, which on so many levels is the creepiest thing in the world to call a random person you know that might not even be their house. Bassist Chris Fafalius. My friend Josh Blasco, who was the guy who exposed me to tons of punk rock music, is the guy who took me to a baseball card shop where I bought my first bass. Basically, it was a cool pawn shop, but it really wasn't a pawn shop. He sold anything from skateboards to band t-shirts to fishing lures, and apparently he had a guitar section, and he went and bought his bass on like a total whim. Which I believe was some sort of version of an Ibanez. It was black and white, and I put stickers all over it. Original Punchline drummer, PJ Caruso. I always knew who Chris was. I never really hung out with him or anything, though. I do remember him very vividly, though. I remember this one time I left my art folder in algebra class, and uh, Chris was in the next class in the next period, and uh, him and all his buddies wrote Kurt Cobain lives all over my art folder. But that's okay. That's still pretty funny, though. So I showed up to this band practice. Chris was there and he had a bass. I think it was a Smar, C apostrophe, M-A-R bass. And they wanted to play, what did we cover? Like, I think Lagwagon and No Effects, Misfits type stuff. I met Steve on the first day of high school. I remember having a really weird first impression of Steve. Like I knew he played guitar and I knew he was in the music. And then once in a while he'd be wearing like a, I don't know, like a rancid t-shirt or something. And I'd be like, oh, that's cool. But then the next day he'd be wearing like (laughs) a fish t-shirt or something like that. And all I really could judge him on was what band t-shirts he was wearing. But I think what was really going on is he was just buying whatever band t-shirt was for sale at Spencer's Gifts. (laughs) I figured out how to play all of Green Day Dookie 
in like 15 minutes. Which blew my mind because Dookie is like 39 minutes long. And just this whole thing unlocked that I could figure out how to play songs, which is, is a pretty simple thing, but gave me at the time what felt like all the power in the, in the world. So I was excited about high school. I certainly could not play drums. In fact, I only started playing drums because the drummer in our band was a senior. We were all freshmen, and he never came to practice. That was a squirrel. I think Bro Him was the first thing I learned how to play on bass, which was cool because you could play that song on one string. But soon after, I started playing songs that used more than one string. Our high school was two middle schools that joined at high school. And so there were all these other kids. And so my group of friends from our middle school, we kind of gravitated towards this other circle of friends from this other school. And one of those kids was was PJ. You know, he wanted to be in bands and whatnot. And he had just got a drum set. We were uh, all in the freshman assembly, like hanging out, and uh, Steve comes up to me because uh, I had just bought a guitar to play it again music in Periopolis. It was a P- red PV Predator Strat, and uh, Steve comes up to me and he goes, "You took my guitar," and um, it's pretty funny that I always remember Steve's voice being like, "You took my guitar," even though he definitely didn't sound like that. Um, I kind of knew who PJ was in middle school. It's funny how you have to judge other people by like the t-shirts they wear, but much like my Steve story, I noticed that PJ had a Rage Against the Machine shirt, which I thought was cool. I think that PJ and I were a lot more alike than I realized. I think that maybe he was in the same boat as me where I did well in school, but I didn't want anyone to know about it. It was the 90s, Beavis and Butthead was on TV, being smart was not cool, yet I was the guy who went to the computer lab in the morning in middle school and turned on all the computers for the math teacher, and then I would sit in there and play Tetris in the morning, and then the year after, because PJ was a year younger than me, he was that guy. And I remember going to PJ's house one night and taking my SG and I think I was wearing a hat but I had never really worn a hat but since I was starting this new thing with a new friend I could wear a hat. Steve and Chris were playing in a band at the time that was called Youth Skills. Um, yeah, they that was definitely the name of the band was Youth Skills. A series of short-lived high school bands such as Youth Skills, Image 33, Pitchback, and Lax forged the path that would lead Chris, Steve, and PJ to the formation of Punchline. Chris rode my bus, but we never really talked. He sat up front, and I noticed that he was a punk guy based on the t-shirts he wore. And I mean, out of a school of about a thousand people, you know, there's really only a handful of punk kids, so everybody kind of stood out to each other. I rode the bus with Steve and I just put my headphones on in the front and had my disc man and listened to music and talked to nobody, including him. Steve made me a mixtape one time and one of the songs on that mixtape was Room Without a Window by Operation Ivy. And like up to that point, I had never really been into that kind of music. I never even knew music could be that fast and that's not even that fast of a song really. Being Chris wrote some songs with uh, this other guy, Lucas. playing drums and that didn't really go anywhere and then pj one night in in the woods behind my house we talked about starting a band together and having band practice the next day it's pretty crazy that a camp out 
in the woods behind Steve's parents' house in Belvern in Pennsylvania kind of changed the course of our lives forever. We just decided that the, uh, the next day we were going to go practice at my parents' house because that's where the drums are. You go where the drums are. And we didn't have a talk about who was going to write songs or who was going to sing. I kind of followed Chris's lead. He came into practice. You know, he would be like, I wrote a song. And he'd have a piece of paper and it ha- would have the name of the song written big and bold at the top and then have the lyrics and would be broken down and say verse one, pre-chorus, chorus. And it helped me to conceptualize what goes into making making a song. So we uh, practiced in my garage. Uh, we played Green Day, One of My Lies, over and over again. In a bin at my house, I still have the pink notebook where I would write songs and lyrics to bring them to practice. And I even wrote tabs. And I can't remember really being on the internet a lot yet to even know about tabs. They were writing all of these like punk songs, all these like amateur garage, like real learning how to play guitar songs, which worked out perfectly because I was a real learning how to play drums drummer. And I guess it's kind of weird that we were actually filming our first practice, but um, I don't think many people do that. But hey, you know, Johnny had the camcorder, so we were filming. Hi, I'm Johnny. I was filming the first punchline practice because me, Steve, Chris, and PJ were all good buds in high school. And I had my parents' camcorder. It's so it's so perfect. We're dancing. We're skanking. It's out of time. I'm wearing a Hard Rock Cafe shirt. <laughs> it was so good. Johnny was there. Johnny is our best friend in the world and of course he was at our first practice their first song i was like wow these guys are amazing and you know looking back uh it really wasn't amazing when you actually watched the footage but at the time i was like wow these guys have something and you know i'm kind of right i just love that after our first practice we put on some music and skanked we were probably the least cool people ever And that clip of us playing in the garage later was viewed by millions of people, but we'll eventually get to that. And then all of a sudden, you know, we had this band and and it was all based around PJ's house and his parents were super nice and super welcoming. And I always feel this guilt that we practiced there for so long and left so much of our equipment there and uh miss caruso if you're listening to this i'm sorry for us having our stuff at your house for so long yeah and my dad said that uh the tv would be all staticky and he would be watching it even though he couldn't hear it and we were just down the basement banging away on everything i think all of us had parents who were pretty cool with us being in a band i think all of us did pretty well in school didn't cause trouble weren't hooked on drugs so our parents probably thought okay they want to get together and play some <laughs> really bad sounding music. That's fine. But I always like the early on melody ideas and the chords and the basic songs. The lyrics we kind of we kind of struggled with. Everything was on the table. At no point would any of us come up with an idea and, you know, Chris, Steve, or myself would say, nah, let's not sing about that. It was like, <laughs> Pippi Longstocking, yep, let's rock. Let's do it. We 
actually recorded a demo tape in my parents' basement. And uh, yeah, there was no four track involved. There was no eight track involved. There may have been maybe one microphone, but basically it was just a boom box and like hit record, let's play. It was called It's Gonna Be Sweet. The artwork had uh, characters from Mystery Science Theater 3000 on it. Yeah, calling our first demo tape, it's going to be sweet. That was like a Saturday Night Live reference, I think. Maybe it was like an Adam Sandler or Chris Farley thing. I can't remember exactly. The sound quality was exactly what you would think it would be. Uh, You know, recording on a boombox in a garage with really loud guitars. I think on our first demo tape, we were still the punchline, and we later dropped the the. Uh, There's no real good story to why we're punchline. I think it was just a name we came up with. The only other name I remember being suggested was 300 Yard Drive. I think PJ suggested that. And Jesus Christ, am I glad we're not named after a golf reference. I hate golf. From early on, we had a few ska songs. We were kind of a ska band. Chris wanted, at one point, presented us with the idea of going by uh, Steve Scabosley, Chris Scafalius, and PJ Scaruso. What was really cool was that uh, we drove around the Walmart as, you know, as people did back then. And uh, we just passed it out to everyone we saw, people who we thought would like it, people who wouldn't like it, who people who we thought were like into punk and basically just everybody. I remember manually dubbing the cassette tapes. I remember cutting out the cover of the demo and putting it inside of the cassette cases. And it didn't matter how bad the recording was. I know I was excited to just have some sort of recording. There was this thing, uh, we used to call them rockin' walks. And what it was, was uh, a bunch of our friends would come over to my parents' house on Friday after school. Again, why they allowed this to happen, I have absolutely no idea. Yeah, rockin' walks were kind of my first experience of playing in front of a group of people who at least seemed to be enjoying the music we would play our songs and all of our friends would like skank around or mosh over by the steps we would play a set and then we would walk to the football games it was maybe a half a mile and we would walk often single file (laughs) short as the tallest and then we would walk from my parents house which uh wasn't very far to the stadium but Definitely long enough that if you were doing it single file line shortest to tallest, it was very odd. To this day, I still think that 12 to 15 dudes walking single file down the side of the road in order of shortest to tallest is still amazing. And I would still love to do that right now. Our first show was in Charleroi, Pennsylvania, which is across the river from Belvernon, 
where we're from. We hustled really hard making flyers and uh, selling $3 tickets to that first show. We really wanted that first show to be real good. But our friends were super supportive and, you know, we got a lot of people to come out and it was it was really encouraging. It was more of a party than it was a show. Like, yeah, Punchline was playing, but we were all just dancing, skanking, having a good time. And that kind of set set the mood for Punchline shows for years to come. Those were really great times because I think it really fueled our fire and like showed us that like, wow, people were actually kind of into this. Any team that was worth their weight in wallet chains was at the Punchline show at Club Rockers in the fall of 1997 if you were in the Mon Valley. We were wearing Hawaiian shirts and uh, throwing out candy into the crowd. I think we had lays and sunglasses. I think all the silly string and stuff like that distracted from how bad our music was. And uh, we had juice boxes and uh, candy and we were throwing it out into the crowd and the crowd was throwing it all around and like the sound guys back there like ducking juice boxes and stuff. And uh, he actually came up to us at the end of the show threw a juice box of Hawaiian punch on the stage and says, the only thing I want to see coming off this stage is talent. You know, we, we got a four track and we started making tapes. Our second demo tape was called Problems and we made the big step up from just hitting record on a boombox to actually using a four track. The bar back then was actually pretty low. Like, if you listen to the music that we were listening to back then, it doesn't seem like sound quality was a major concern to too many people. I remember pretty clearly the moment that kind of changed everything. Our older friends had started a band called Logic, and the first time I heard their recording on a CD, I was like, whoa. You mean... We could make a recording that sounds that good. Oh man, like, what the heck? You made that in like an actual real studio? And I remember Nick played me there. This was their first CD. And he played it for me in my bedroom. And I thought, these guys are going to win, like go on to win Grammys with this album here that we're listening to. And it just, it just blew my mind. I remember hearing that and just thinking like, wow, like you can actually hear the snare drum and it doesn't just sound like total garbage. And like uh, the kick drum sounded great. And like the guitars were all heavy and crunchy and everything just sounded really good. Yeah, Logic was a lot different style than we were. But those were guys from our hometown who are just a little bit older than us who went into a studio and made a recording that, to my ears, sounded as good as anything out there. And it kind of put all local music on high alert, at least to me. Hey guys, I'm Nick. I was one of the guys from Logic. I think it's awesome that Steve and Chris and PJ were you know, impressed by 
our album. And I think it's funny that they thought we were going to be huge and win a Grammy. I mean, I guess we kind of thought we were going to be huge and win a Grammy too. But, you know, looking back, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We were just an independent band uh, selling CDs in the high school parking lot. Soon after or around there, Chris said, we should go to a studio and record an album. So we found, I, I think the first studio we found, we went to, I don't think we did much price shopping there weren't a lot of options i love how we spent like as much money as we would to record now back then but uh i knew we would make it back and i just thought that recording was going to be amazing because we were doing it in a real studio so chris was graduating high school that year and uh he got all of his graduation party money and he said to us you know what we're gonna do we're gonna go record in a real studio and this is really funny. We were getting the tour of the studio from uh, Ray Skip Calfo, and he's taking us around, showing us everything. And we're like, yeah, we'll think about it. And I turn around, and Chris already has his checkbook out, writing the check, booking the studio, like $1,400. Yes, sir. Let's do it. And the guy who recorded us, I don't think, just based on the guitar tone alone, I don't feel like we quite got the guidance that I wish we would have had on that first album, and we we paid a pretty penny for it too. With the right producer or engineer, like. This first album could have been pretty all right. But if you would even see a picture of this guy who recorded it, short jean shorts, mullet, those glasses that tint when you go out in the sunlight, (laughs) just like the most ridiculous guy. And we paid so much money to record there. And what we got was an album that didn't really sound too good. I like our old songs as far as the melodies and the chords and the general song concepts go but a lot of the lyrics are pretty cringeworthy. The one chorus, track four, you know, track four is kind of a big deal on a CD. And this is the chorus is, I'll bring you flowers every day. Like our friendship and my sanity and the hopes that it will bring me happiness once again. Very, very bubblegum, but that was uh, who I was then. I was very bubblegummy. It was a good experience in that we learned a little bit of about recording. Like, I didn't know anything about a metronome. I remember the sound engineer turned the metronome on, and it was just like, uh, yeah, no, that is not going to happen. It's pretty much just the lyrics that make me cringe so hard. Having now taken the important step of recording in a real studio, Punchline embraced the newest and most cutting-edge promotional tool, the internet. We had a website from, I feel like, one of the first days that you could have a website. 
I don't even remember our first website at all. I mean, barely and vaguely, I remember seeing it with the clouds on it. Angel fire, baby. I started learning a little HTML in my freshman year of college. And I made a website with a cloud background. And for some reason, I do remember there was a picture of Chunk from the Goonies on it. First, you got to do the truffle shuffle. Come on. Do it. Come on. And it mostly had text. And it had a guest book. And I feel like you could still find that guest book if you wanted to. I remember like making friends with people on the guest book because sometimes they would go on there and like actually email you. <laughs> it's actually pretty funny because I'm still friends with some of those people to this very day. And it really opened us up to people beyond our little hometown. Part of our website in high school was a, a, a message board and we would post in this thing. This was like pre-social media and then our friends and fans, I guess, would would comment on these posts. I used to love the message boards for sure. That was such a huge part of my late teens, early 20s. The message boards were definitely Twitter before there was Twitter. We wrote these things called Vibes, which in hindsight is pretty funny because it was like tweets or status updates or something like that. And um, it would just be random you know, phrases and sayings, definitely under 140 characters, like, you know, let's talk about feelings is a great album or, you know, science class is really boring. You know, looking back, I don't really want to read what I wrote because I'm sure that I wrote some terrible stuff, uh, but I didn't call in a bomb threat. And there was this kid that I had been in school with. He was in my grade since we were in first grade, I think. He was Robert Stewart. Super intelligent kid, nice kid, like... Didn't do anything to anybody. Was in all the smart classes. Um, I think he liked hockey a lot. Um, other than that, that's pretty much all I knew about him. And he he wrote something in the message board. This was like just after Columbine and said something like, maybe if I brought a, a bomb to school tomorrow, I wouldn't have to take, we wouldn't have to take the chemistry test or something like that. And this was on our message board. All right, so yeah, let's talk about the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me in particular. My name is Robert Stewart and I went to high school with Steve and Chris. I think everybody knows now that something you write on the internet can come back to bite you, but I think the internet was so new that people were just writing things that they would say in person and all teenagers say stupid things. And I don't think Robert Stewart had any intentions of ever hurting anybody. It was around this point in our senior year that our school had gotten a bomb threat. I don't know who made the original bomb threat. I never really knew who made the original bomb threat. But on Punchline's message board, I mocked the uh, bomb threat that we had received. I was fetching about something, who knows what was going on in my high school life. And I said like, oh, maybe I should do this to fix it. And then I said, oh, maybe I should bring a bomb to the high school. And then if you read in the context of anything, the very next two or three sentences were, obviously I wouldn't do that because I would go to jail or I would die. And I, it was obviously meant to be not a real thing. I think they like raided his house at 6 a.m. in the morning, I heard, and ripped him out of bed and like had really serious repercussions for, for writing this. This kid's like the nicest kid. And there you go. Next thing you know, uh, there's our entire message board printed out by the local police. 
And it's on the news. I love thinking about a bunch of cops sitting around reading our message board vibes. I woke up to uh, being arrested, which is fun for an 18-year-old. Obviously, on my end, nothing much came of it. I was pretty quickly cleared, and, and anybody with any reading comprehension context could read the thing. Probably the only thing that really bothers me is... I didn't have the ability to think outside of myself at the time, and I don't think I realized until years and years and years later that everyone interpreted what I said as the threat the school got, and it wasn't. There was a bomb threat that the school got. I was heckling it, and I got in trouble for that, but I think everybody ended up assuming that what I said was interpreted as the original bomb threat that our school got, and it wasn't. They really, really stuck it to him. Like, they wanted to make such an example out of him. But they didn't let him walk with our graduating class, and I'm not really sure what happened. Robert. On my end, it was a nuisance. I didn't get to go to my senior prom. I didn't get to go to graduation. I ended up the last, what, month of my high school life, I was suspended. So nothing really came of it. It's absolutely amazing how blown out of proportion it was. When you go back and think about it and just think about how just misunderstood the whole thing was. I don't remember how we booked our first out-of-state show, but it was in Westminster, Maryland, and at some kind of like arcade-type place where you could shoot basketball, play arcade games. The girl had hit us up about that show via our website, and I think that the email address on our website was my college email address because I don't even think I had like a Hotmail account yet or anything. I think I was using my Duquesne University email to book punchline shows. Chris's dad took us, I think, in his truck with his with a trailer behind it. It was really nice of my dad to take us to our first out-of-state show. I don't think he'd ever even really heard our music or seen us before. But man, that was an incredible first show. And I think that if that first out-of-state show would have been bad, maybe we wouldn't have been as enthusiastic about getting out there and touring and things like that. It was really awesome, and I really got to give a shout-out to the people of Westminster, Maryland for uh, really bringing it that night. We played. I remember I wore a Vandals T-shirt, and we just we had... Such a good show. Everybody went so crazy. And we thought, wow, people outside of all people outside of Pennsylvania must love us. It was it was a really encouraging show. We sold I, I want to say we sold like a hundred five dollar CDs, which was a lot, but it was just super encouraging and made some friends out of state and met some some bands, met some people at that show that still you know, I'm friends with on, on Facebook and whatnot. It was a hugely impactful show. From then on, we were all about playing anywhere, driving anywhere within reason to play shows and just get in front of more people. We were hooked at that point. 
Uh, but my dad surely wasn't going to drive us to all of them, and we did not have a band vehicle. Chris had this minivan that we would go out and play shows in. After the first one went so well, clearly it warranted more, and we would hop in the minivan on the weekends, you know, me, Chris, and PJ, and sometimes a friend. And it wasn't like some old band van or like an old Astro van. This was like a, a straight up brand new soccer mom minivan. It looked like a silver bullet. I was a freshman in college at this point and PJ and Steve were still seniors in high school. And I just needed a personal vehicle in general as well. So my very generous parents got me a 1998 Plymouth Voyager, which is not only a very reliable vehicle, but also could fit band equipment in it and it was perfect and we would go you know play shows in eastern pa and central pa and cleveland and we started to just kind of get around that thing literally took us everywhere like especially in the early days like a freshman year of college we would go to class like monday through thursday play shows friday and saturday come back on sunday do your schoolwork, get cut up and go back to class on Monday, and that was basically the routine that we had. In lieu of partying a lot in my early college years, we were just playing shows, and yeah, maybe we would party some, you know, in our own way. But we were just really focused on expanding our reach as a band, and... We also had a pretty good grasp on the concept of not overplaying your hometown to the point where people don't care. We knew pretty early on that you should make your shows an event and, you know, play a show in your hometown once every couple months, not every week like we saw so many bands doing. With his minivan, it will always remind me of these long, late-night drives of listening to... Counting Crows album August and everything after and literally like everyone in the van singing every word we had choreographed dances my brother would come with us to the shows and he would get so into the Counting Crows dances Just about the front door like a ghost into a fog where no one notices the contrast of white on white in between the moon and Chris drove that for well over a decade. That thing had to have hundreds of thousands of miles on it. I had that minivan as my personal vehicle long after we didn't use it for band stuff anymore. It was my personal vehicle well into my 30s. And I think by the time it was all said and done, it had a couple hundred thousand miles on it. And I actually crushed that van with a giant crane myself. Club Laga was the go-to destination for all ages shows in Pittsburgh from 1996 to 2004. It was a 1,400-capacity venue that featured both national and local acts. Everyone from Blink-182 to the Wu-Tang Clan made appearances at this legendary club, and the Laga stage was an essential part of Punchline's formative years. Club Laga was the mecca of all things bands and punk and concerts. It was in Oakland, 
in Pittsburgh. Club Lago was definitely the place to be in Pittsburgh in the late 90s. Every cool show came through Lago. The club held about a thousand people. The first show I saw there was this band Archers of Loaf. Stuck a pin in your backbone, spoke it down from there. All I ever wanted was to be your spine. Lost your friction and your slip. We would always be at Club Laga, uh, just talking to people, making friends uh, with, you know, the sound guys, people in other bands, bartenders, just basically everyone. And, uh, you know, we just were hustling. And it was actually like kind of like we were networking before we even knew what networking really was. So then for us, you know, we wanted to play there. I think that we maybe just rented it out for our first show. We just had to get in there. And then we played a show or two with the Berlin Project, and then, you know, we started going to college. I was going to college down down the street, so I was starting to hang out at Club Laga a lot more, and then it was nice because when we had to sell tickets for shows before we were in high school, but now we're in college, we're in Oakland where the concerts are, and it became easier to even sell more. We got the opening slot on a lot of really cool shows that came through Pittsburgh because we were willing to hustle, hustle, baby. hustle. I just want you to know. and put the effort in to sell 50 or 100 or more physical tickets to shows to get that slot. Very, very formative years, those first few years of college meeting, meeting friends from other places and making friends like so many friends who were still friends today. I've heard stories and seen people post things over the years about not wanting to sell tickets to shows because they feel like that's pay to play or something. But the fact of the matter is we got like $2 for every ticket we sold. We got to play in front of tons of people. We got to sell merch. It was a win-win for everybody involved. Nick Revac. And I think that just shows that they just worked harder than every other band. They just outworked everybody and they just never stopped. But then over the years from, you know, going to school in the city, getting on some better show lineups, making friends with with bands, we started to, you know, actually draw our own crowd. I think at first we were just psyched to be playing with bands that we loved. And I think that quickly changed to, oh, we want to be those bands. <laughs> Craziest lineup. The Get Up Kids at the Drive-In. Ultimate fake book and punchline. We were starting to feel some momentum. We were writing a lot of songs. At a certain point, we reached a critical mass and we started just making a lot of fans and the fans would come and fill up fill up the room. The main thing that people liked about them and why people in our area were into them because they were like really having a good time playing. They were nice to people. They came to see them. And they were just having fun. They weren't trying to look super cool. They weren't doing this for the wrong reasons. They were just up there playing music that they loved. And I think people really responded to that. And we didn't really feel like that first album was a good representation of us anymore. So by 1999, we figured, hey, it's time to go record another CD. We recorded our sec- our self-titled album, which was our second full length, um, in Steubenville, Ohio. It wasn't at Innovation Studios. I wish I knew what could remember what that was called. Self-titled was recorded at 
Aardvark Studios in Steubenville, Ohio. And then later, Mike moved down the street to Innovation Studios. Mike Ofka was the guy that recorded that legendary Logic CD. Hi, my name is Mike Ofka. I'm a music producer based out of the city of Steubenville, Ohio, which is very close to the city of Pittsburgh. And I want to talk to you about my first impression of the band Punchline. I first met them in 1999 when they booked two days of studio time to record 10 songs for their self-titled record. And my first impression based on this was, wow, these guys are super ambitious because 10 songs in two days is not very much time for that many songs. And by that point, our songs were getting better. We were starting to realize things about our music. For example, you know, with this whole, we never had guidance or anything. I mean, nobody told us what harmonies were. I think there are a lot of people in the world who like to learn about things and be trained on things. And when they step into the realm of doing that thing, they come with full knowledge. And then there's other people that just do things and figure it out along the way. I think from day one in Punchline, we were just like, well, we know we want to be a band. We know we want to play music. We'll figure it out as we go. And uh, I think we were definitely still (laughs) in that frame of mind during this period in our band. We were a lot of heart and a lot of going on stage and just, you know, giving the most passionate performances we could. But as far as the songs, the songs were the songs that we that we wrote. I honestly don't have a lot of memories from this recording session. The only thing I do remember is meeting Mike Ofka for the first time, who became a big part of the punchline story along the way. I just remember that he was a very soft-spoken guy, and I had no idea what he thought of our music. So we went ahead and set up all the microphones and the instruments, and then they started to play. My first impression was, wow, these guys don't sound very good. He definitely thought we were okay, like our songs were okay and everything, but we definitely couldn't play like anywhere near his level. He's like this amazing guitar player that like can shred solos. Actual Mike Ofka guitar solo. Despite my pessimism about their playing, there was still something very cool about the songs. The melodies were infectious. The lyrics were very well done. They had some really cool chord changes. And the album actually ended up turning out pretty cool. We didn't really know that you were supposed to take longer than a weekend to do 10 plus songs. So we stayed overnight in Steubenville. We recorded the whole thing in two days. All of the instruments and all the music on one day, and then all of the vocals the next day. And I don't know, if you listen to it, it's so bad. We're so off time. Self-titled album is still a rough listen for me, but I definitely think it's a great improvement from how to get kicked out of the mall. I think the guitar tones are better. I think my bass sounds cool. I think sonically, Mike Ofka did the best he could with us at that moment, but I still think we were still figuring a lot of things out. We didn't know how to harmonize yet. We just doubled Doubled everything. everything. And yeah, we were just figuring it out and we packed a lot of songs into two days. 
Punchline turned out to be one of the bands that I've had the longest working relationship with and longest personal relationship with. All these years later, I'm still great friends with all the guys. And we've done some amazing work over that span of time. So let that be a lesson to you, kids. Never judge anything on the first impression because you just never know. These songs had some character and some and some charm. Some of the ones that stand out to me, uh, the song Much More, which we made a music video for. Much more than I expected I was not prepared for this I grew up too quickly And now I see that So one of the only songs I ever wrote for Punchline was on this album. Uh, it was called My Turn, you know, the Rachel song. And it was actually a joke because we were at practice and I wrote this song and Steve knew it was about this girl, Rachel, that I liked. So when it came time for a chorus, he just sang Rachel over and over again. And, uh, well, it just kind of stuck because, you know, like, <laughs> like if, you know, true to form, if you had an idea, we're just going to stick with it. Doesn't matter if it's good. Doesn't matter if it makes sense. Doesn't matter if it's over the top. You got an idea? We're doing it. I think my turn is the first song that I can remember being like a hit song amongst people that like our band. I think it was probably what we closed with. And it's Once again, it's a rough listen for me now. Uh, but the chorus is just Rachel over and over again. But I guess that connected with people, especially people named Rachel. that was the first song that we had that people really liked. I feel like that was our first big song. (laughs) We were playing a lot of shows at this point and we were getting to know a lot of other bands, whether it was other Pittsburgh bands that we were becoming friends with, or if it was touring bands coming through that we got to open for. And in general, everyone was pretty nice. That's pretty standard practice for the local opening band. You at least are cordial to them. But one thing that stands out in my mind from this time period was the first time I was ever disappointed by a band that I really loved. A big part of the early on punk rock days, you know, there's this big DIY do-it-yourself ethos in in the punk rock community, which I feel like was a precursor to the whole DIY independent music movement so i'm glad that we were more prepared than most but you know we weren't if we couldn't get a show at your club then we'll just go set up our own show and we would rent out you know american legion halls and vfw halls and there was this band called the ataris that we loved and i remember i had gone to see them in like other towns in pennsylvania we caught wind one way or another that The Ataris were on some tour, but they had an off day and it was Easter Sunday and they wanted a show. So we set up a show at the Brentwood VFW, just outside of Pittsburgh, and did a great job promoting it. And a lot of people came. We thought it was so cool that we had set up this this hall show 
and it did it did well. People thought we were crazy because it was Easter Sunday, but the punk rock kids they didn't care. They just wanted to go to the show, so they came to the show, and man, we I feel like we always had this thing about our group that our mentality was be nice and be cool and 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 work hard for sure you know how people can tell you like a thousand nice things and you don't really remember them but the one mean thing someone says to you sticks out in your head that's kind of how this situation is and i still remember it real vividly because i was a huge fan of that band that's why we set the show up on a holiday not knowing if people were going to come but we worked hard promoted the show they ended up getting a hundred percent of the door And I remember being in this backstage area. It was just a room. It was like a VFW hall. And I was joking around with my friends, doing an impression of something that was from TV. I can't remember exactly what it was. But the singer of the Ataris was not involved in this conversation. And I remember him making fun of me, but like in a bullyish kind of way not in a hey I'm joining in on the joke kind of way it was just like straight up mean and then he walked out of the room and I remember PJ looking at me and saying dude what was that and just feeling so weird and to this day it's been decades and to this day I hold that grudge against that guy. So they made a ton of money on it. They should have been very happy with it. I mean, it was Easter Sunday. I just think that was an important lesson for us in how to not treat people. And it was a huge disappointment. I hope that I've not treated people like that, but they left garbage all over the parking lot. And it was, I mean, it was, (laughs) it was really emotional for us in the sense that we, for years later, you know, cleaned up our dressing rooms for the most part. And we learned a lot from that. You learn lessons along the way. You see some bands doing things that you like and you say, we want to do that. And you see other bands doing things you don't like. And you say, well, we're not going to be that kind of band. Whenever we first got into college, it was cool because we got into like the Pittsburgh punk scene. And I remember it was really cool. There was an awesome pit punk message board. Pittsburgh was a pretty punk rock city, the home of anti-flag and punks who wore patches with the casualties and, you know, Oz Rotten. It was a pretty punk rock, pretty punk rock town. We obviously had our own kind of thing going, but it was kind of important to us that the punk rock scene kind of accepted us. We thought it was cool and we wanted them to think, that we were cool. How are we going to win over the punks? So we started playing shows at the Millvale Industrial Theater, among other places. And there were some, there were some skate parks. And I feel like there was some Pittsburgh, you know, festival that was at that Millvale Industrial Theater. And I remember, I remember some show where just the tables, the tables turned and we were embraced by by the punks and that made me made me really happy because i saw that as being a potential challenge for us we tried to be cool with everybody and i don't know if we were ever actually accepted by the pittsburgh punks but we did our best to just be nice to everybody and i really feel strongly that at some point 
some Pittsburgh punk probably said, Punchline? <laughs> Their music sucks. But they're pretty nice guys. I feel like we got along with everybody. So if you knew us, you probably we probably got along and we were friends. Or, you know, maybe if you just heard there was this band Punchline and people were going to see them, maybe you were salty about that. But whatever. I don't care. That's their problem. I remember this feeling that, wow, we were in this city of Pittsburgh and we have, like, support from these people and support from these people. And it seemed like this must be a good thing because we're... We're winning over these different kinds of of groups and these different, you know, areas of, of people. It's pretty cool. Everything that we've discussed so far, I kind of think of it as almost like a different band. We've never changed the name of our band, but I kind of feel like it was now at this point where we're at in the story that Punchline truly started. We played this show. It was in August of maybe 99 at Club Laga with this band No Knife and Piebald, which Piebald went, went on to be a real darling of the whole emo and uh, pop punk movement. And at the time, I think we had our eyes set more on No Knife. They had so many, so many really cool songs. But this show was cool for us as the local band because this show had two local bands and we weren't the first one on the show. The opening band of that show was Substandard. And (laughs) no offense to Substandard or Piebald or No Knife, I have no recollection of this show whatsoever. The opening band was this band called Substandard. guitar player who was a charming little dude named Paul Menotiades. I guess this is where I come in. My name is Paul Menotiades. I met, I think I met Punchline at Club Laga, my high school band Substandard. We managed to convince somebody to let us open for No Knife and Piebald. And the other band on the bill was Punchline. And uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. What a great show. The first time I do remember seeing Substandard is when we played together at a place called Cool Peppers Hot House in the Lawrenceville section of Pittsburgh. Cool Peppers Hot House. And they had one room that had a bar, and then the other room was just a room. And I remember walking in and saying, where's the stage? Where's the PA? But it was, bring it, bring it yourself. I had agreed to book River City High, uh, which I had no business doing at the time, Um, but it turned out okay. River City High was happy and super cool, and I asked Punchline to play. Thankfully, they agreed. Uh, You know, the show did well enough to pay River City High their guarantee, in large part due to Punchline agreeing to play the show. There weren't many people at that show. But I always remember seeing Substandard play at that show because I was like, man, they are good. And who is that little guy? <laughs> it, Paul was probably 15 years old at the time, but he was already so good at guitar and such a good singer. And he had such good sideburns. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I think it was like, I don't know. I don't, I don't really believe in fate or whatever, but... 
the fact that we were playing together at this cool peppers hothouse in front of no one this random show uh i i think it was it was meant to be this is actually pretty funny i remember at that time i think i told paul that i was gonna play guitar and then we're gonna get someone else to play drums which is funny because that would have been so horrible we played that show and substandard blew us away i mean they were younger younger than us and their songs but their songs sounded more like the music that we listened to as far as like the harmonies and the musicality and it was really eye-opening wow this local band is like blowing my face off and there are five five people here which before that you know wasn't too uncommon for when there were five people that you would listen to the band and say oh, okay this is why there's five people here by the time we had played the show and loaded out and hung out with Paul and talked to him and he was a nice guy. I, I think we left that show all thinking the same thing. I think that we exchanged phone numbers and became phone buddies. I talked about this earlier in reference to the camp out behind Steve's where we decided to start Punchline. But I think this night would be in the same category. I would say that this night at Cool Pepper's Hothouse changed the course of our lives forever. Join us next time for episode two, which dives into the major motion picture era. The van would stall out and you would have to restart it, but you could, re- you could restart it while it was in motion. So it could be achieved. But we drove home all the way from California with it like this, and I can't believe that we that we made it home. The fact that we were able to go across the country and back in that van may have been something that kept our band going, because had we broke down and had to find a way back home, I don't know, maybe we would have went like, you know what, this isn't worth it. Thank you so much for listening to a band called Punchline, the story of our band, Punchline. You should listen to our music. It's everywhere where you can listen to music. And the coolest place to listen to our music is on Bandcamp, punchline.bandcamp.com. That's where most of our stuff is anyways, and Bandcamp is an awesome way to support the bands you love. One last thing, check out the Punchline Music Special, streaming now on Amazon Prime. The Punchline Music Special. It took us a long time to make, so you should go watch it. 